Hey everybody, Jim Duncan with Nest Realty and Sweat the Details. This week, Mike Simonson from Outdoors Research and Housing Wire joined Jonathan Keith and me. We talked about markets that are on the leading edges of the housing market, inventory shifts, what data points realtors and consumers should be focusing on, where in the U.S. might be more poised for growth and balance, pricing, real estate values, and a whole lot more. Hope you enjoy the conversation. So here we are, Nest, Nest Realty Sweat the Details with uh, Jonathan, Keith, and we have Mike Simonson from Altos Research. Uh, hey, everybody. How are you doing, Mike? Great. Thanks. Great. Um, so we were talking a little bit before, um, and the, the question we wanted to lead off with was, so how many times a day do you check the 10-year treasury spread? <laughs> you know, in the last few years, last, you know, really maybe uh, 18 or 24 months, I went from never, ever checking it to like going, oh, maybe I should pay attention to this, you know? <laughs> <laughs> like it, it's, uh, and, and now it's, you know, like, what's it doing today? Yeah. Really fascinating. Times. I will say I, I never checked the 10 year treasury until like 60 days ago, ever. I mean, it just wasn't a thing. And then all of a sudden it's now a thing. So um, not, now I don't feel bad. So thanks for making me feel okay about, about my right. <laughs> Suddenly it's driving a lot of uh, our everyday experience. So I, I want to start with one question, Mike. It's, and it's one of the, I mean, we send a list of topics and probably to, to head into, but one that is a tangential one is I've heard on your, your amazing, you know, podcast and uh, your weekly videos are phenomenal. And we'll put links to all this in our, in our show notes, but I, once or twice, I've heard you say that your algorithm had not accounted for X because of the shift that we're seeing in the last, you know, 15, 18 months. How how often do y'all rejigger that and, and like reanalyze the how you put the algorithm together? There's um, you know, almost everything we do at Altos is is just uh, we count it and we report it. Right. It's like there are these homes on the market right now, and here's the median price, and here's how long they've been on the market, and here's how many of them have had price reductions. So almost none of our um our work has seasonal adjustments. We don't do seasonal adjustments. Like, you know, we plot it out on charts and you go, oh, last season it was higher, but we don't do like, there's a, we don't, we don't mess with the data. And one of the things we do, like, it's like, um, because we track every home for sale in the country, right? Uh, like, it's like, this is it. This is the whole set. And so, uh, but we use a, a tool that we created called the market action index, which is uh, supply versus demand. Uh, and, you know, and it's a, like a speedometer, right? And and when demand is higher and supply is tighter, that speedometer goes up. And if inventory is building, but transaction volume is building too, then that speedometer doesn't really, that like, it doesn't, like inventory is building, but transaction volume is building. So that does, it's not necessarily a bad thing, right? Demand is climbing with supply. So this, um, there's an algorithm that goes and says, okay, you know, based on the, you know, the total number of sales versus the number of homes that are on the market, we can, we can say that this is really some seller's conditions or buyer's conditions. And, um, you know, what's, what's fascinating is, so right now, you know, we are, there's a couple of things going on in October of 2023. Inventory is still dramatically below long-term averages, uh, half uh, or, you know, less than half of, uh, you know, what it was just a, you know, earlier part of the decade. Um, and 
Uh, but also right now, demand is really low. Like the last few weeks, like people are waiting to buy. Right. And so, you know, there's a couple of places around the country, like Austin, Texas, uh, where inventory is like higher than it was, um, you know, in the last it's eight, nine years. Um, and and demand is down and prices are ticking down lower and like those things. Um, and but what's interesting is that it's been it's really been 12 years since we've had buyers market opportunities pretty much anywhere in this country right we've had we've had low rates we've had good demographics we've had falling inventory every year and so you know what does a buyer's market even look like anymore it's been so long that we've seen it so you know we um so so i sometimes get uh criticism like people will say well you know right now austin our number for austin texas is just balanced just barely you know, positive in the in the seller's condition, um, but we really haven't seen a buyer's condition in, in you know since 2010. And so you know, so so like that's what the the algorithm is, and I'm referring to there. And, and you know, is it are there buyers condition buyers opportunities right now? Maybe it is because you know you don't have any buyer competition. But in most places, you also as a buyer don't have much selection. And so if you're a seller. And you uh, price properly, you know, you'll still like there's still plenty of opportunity to sell your house right now. And so um, although maybe this week the, you know, the buyers are waiting until next week to see what happens with rates. But but like that's So that's what that algorithm is is referring to. Interesting. So I want to dig in on the Austin uh, um, comment that you made. And I know that um, I'll tell you and I've told all of our agents this is I, I spend my mornings going on long runs and many of my mornings are listening to you and kind of your uh, top of mind podcast and housing wire and things like that, soaking it in. But do you see the, the Austins and the Boise's and the Phoenix of the world, which are these kind of, you know, you call them sometimes secondary markets, but for us being in mostly small towns, we, we see them as primary markets. Is this kind of the leading indicator of what's coming for the Charlottesville, Virginias, and Asheville, North Carolinas, and Wilmington, North Carolinas. Do you do you think this is just kind of a, like a canary in the coal mine? So that's a great question, and it's one I was asking earlier this week. Um, you know, Austin is maybe the only big market in the country that has more inventory than uh, than uh, you know in the recent decade, um, and uh, and so is it the canary in the coal mine? So Austin has a few things that make it different from the rest of the country. Um, and that's it, Austin had massive inbound California migration, which stopped, uh, which drove up prices a ton. And when, when mortgage rates are, you know, 2.8% and you're moving from San Francisco or LA to Austin, you know, you go, Hey, I'm just going to overbid by 140 grand. It only adds, you know, 250 bucks to my payment. And like, I'll just bid it. Like, I don't care. Right. I'm, I'm already coming down. I'm, I'm buying a million dollar house and selling a million four. So it doesn't like it, like that kind of thing. So that happened a ton right up until 18 months ago. Um, so then that stopped. Uh, and so that's one thing that like that, that might, that massive migration trend slowed way down for Austin and for Boise. Um, uh, Texas also has really high property taxes. 
And so um, the other thing that happens is that, you know, your holding costs in, in Austin go up um, when your house home price goes up. If you're in California, California, we, our property taxes are frozen, basically frozen. And so, you know, um, your property taxes don't go up. So now you're in Austin and, and like, and you're in California, you buy a house next year, you have a fixed rate, your, your property taxes don't go up, even if your home price goes up by 40%. Your property, the same property, but in Austin, your cash is going up. So in Texas, that creates a healthier, more resale in the housing market. So Texas has greater inventory. So there may be people like that if, um, hitting Austin right now. And the third thing in Austin is new construction, right? So lots of new construction in the Texas markets and Austin in particular. And so a lot of those are still coming to market. And so all of those are. Uh, factoring in to make what I would say is uh, I caution against using Austin as a proxy for the whole country right now. Um, I think if rates are staying higher and higher for longer, there's still adjustment to happen. And so like, you know, maybe Austin's at the forefront of that. Um, but, but um, Austin is like, has the, the like um, most, the toughest collection of of uh you know combination of of factors against it right now interesting interesting i thought it was um, interesting this year john that um that so last fall market cool markets cooled and we could watch all the you know the western boom markets slowed way down so that was austin but it was phoenix and denver salt lake and boise like all of those slowed way down last year um, and we watched that in like the price reductions on the market, right? They went from like 15% of homes on the market had price reductions to 60% in one year. Like that, you really see it. Um, then we saw a little bit of price correction in places like Phoenix and investors, uh, seem to have put a floor on pricing because investor capital came in and bought things this, this year in place like Phoenix and put a floor on pricing. And I didn't know a year ago is, you know, would investors exacerbate a downturn by selling or freaking out or not buying? Or when prices come down, would they say, well, I've got cash. I'm just going to buy now. I haven't been able to buy in, in a few years. And it looks like they bought this year to keep a floor on pricing. So, um, so some of those markets like Phoenix right now is not as rough as Austin is right now, which is an interesting trend. So, so two yeah. things on that, that Mike, and, and then Keith, you can jump in. You know, is you know, do you see a line of demarcation for price reductions? I mean, I was looking at one market segment in the Charlottesville market the other day, and about 29, 30 days is where you start to see the bulk of the price reductions. And when I was looking at looking at the pendings, yeah. so that, that that's one question. The second one is, do you see with a slowdown? Do you attribute any any or most or some or whatever of that to? The you know the mortgage rate locket. I mean, I think there are, I see a different couple of different theories on that. But personally, from a practitioner perspective, hearing my clients say, "I'm never going to sell because I got a 2.8 mortgage," kind of betrays the whole thought of mortgage lock-in effect is is not real. Yeah. So um, so price reductions tend to happen after that that 30 day around that 30 day window, right? A uh, couple of things are going to happen there. One is, um, you know, a, a seller is going to either 
you know, cut their price or they are going to withdraw, pull it, pull the listing, right? Until after the holidays, right? There's going to be those kind of things going on. And when we track price reductions at Altos, we're, we're looking back actually longer than 30 days, like 90 or 120 days, something like that. So that um, we can say, so when we like report that normally a, a rule of thumb is about 30 to 35% of homes take a price cut before they sell. And so we look back at the market and and they didn't have to cut this week, but they might be cut in September. So that that is a house that has had a price cut and it's in our set that way. And um, and so yes, you see that um, you see that there. And and you know, if you if you're there and you haven't had an offer in a month, especially when we've been in a world where, you know, it's you know, 14 or 21 days to sell, and now you haven't had any traffic in in a in a month like hey guys it's time to um got time to time to act and you know one thing jim when i when when i talk with um agents doing the listing presentation there's really a great um you know a, a powerful moment in here to say hey look um here's where we're going to price the house i'm going to put this report in your inbox every monday while we have your house listed i want you to look at one number and if this number is ticking up and you could say, look at this price reductions number, if this number is ticking up while we have your house listed and we haven't gotten our offers, you know, this is the market giving us a signal and maybe we want to get ahead of this curve. And so then you get your seller looking at the data every week and then your seller goes, Jim, I've been watching this number. You know, they do the call to you to right. say, hey, maybe we need to do a price reduction. Um, and it's really in that 30-day window that that is when you start feeling it. Um, and then your other question was on... Lock-in. On lock-in, mortgage lock-in. Okay, so the data shows that um, lower inventory leads to... Or lower, lower mortgage rates leads to less inventory higher mortgage rates leads to higher inventory. Um, and that's really because of holding costs. And so, you know, the mortgage lock-in says, it, like the, the, the conventional wisdom says, well, once rates fall again, then we'll get some listings and I'll, everything will be improved. But what happens is um, rates fall, my holding costs are cheaper. So I it rates fall and it spurs demand but it doesn't spur supply as much. So our selection falls um, because, you know, when rates are four and I go to buy the next house, sometimes I keep the first one. If right. rates are at eight and I buy the next house, I got to sell the first one to finance the next one. And mm -hmm. so inventory builds uh, because of the, be, because the holding costs are higher. And so this has been true for the last decade. Um, and so really, you know, mortgage rate lockdown depends on how you define it. Certainly, um, we're in a space where there's, we're going to have restricted inventory for the next generation because everybody has, you know, a super, the cheapest rate ever. Um, but really the question when they, when the question is, when are we going to get some inventory? Then the answer is, is we get more inventory when rates stay higher for longer, they go higher, they stay higher. And it took us a decade to get down to the record lows. 
And so it could take us multiple years of, you know, seven, eight percent to build that inventory back higher again, back to normal levels. Yeah. So I, I just want to jump in on that because, you know, we're talking about whether it's Denver or Austin, we're talking about growing inventory levels. You're still showing that the reason inventory is growing is a lack of demand. Um, and obviously it's it's a balance question, right? Inventory grows when there's less demand than there is new supply that comes on. But the the interesting piece is, is that we're in a weird state on a macro level of unemployment still at 3.8%. Consumer sentiment is still rising. It um, you know, we're we're incredibly healthy in terms of most family, uh, you know, inflation has taken a huge you know, huge hit to our our happiness of of feeling economically secure, but we're still in a pretty good state. So the reality is when interest rates do drop even in minor amounts, then we see a rush to the market. And so any inventory that we do pick up right now gets lost immediately when the new buyers, the current buyers who just are sitting on the sidelines, I'll say, they're not even new buyers, right? They're already, they've been out there. They've just been, they've pulled themselves out of that market for a period. We've got to have a long run of new supply coming to the market to really substantially improve the supply question. And as you said, in Austin, there still is no selection to be had. There's still really a very small number of properties to look at within each price band. Yeah. And it's, it, you know, Austin is the one place where it's starting to feel like a little more, but, but the rest of the country and especially like the, the central and the Northeast is like dramatic, still at, at, you know, pandemic lows. Uh, but I think you're right, Keith. It's, it's like, um, you know, so the falling rates, uh, in, they, it spurs demand. And so inventory falls. So like, if you're a buyer now, uh, and there are a lot of buyers who are like, look, I'm going to wait because it's really expensive right now. Mo cost of money is really expensive. And that makes a lot of sense. <laughs> and um, and but when rates uh, the but but the the misconception is that, hey, look, you know, if rates fall next spring, I'll have more selection. And the, the answer the challenge is that you're going to probably have less selection, more buyer competition because everybody's waiting the same way you are. And that's really a hard thing for people to get their head around. Which all comes back to, we just need a whole lot more new construction for a solid decade of growing the housing base. Yeah. And, and what happens is, you know, if we do a decade of, you know, rates in the sevens and eights, now we're resetting the cost basis for, all of these, all these people. So when they move, they put their house back on the market or when they want to go like finance their move up, maybe they sell, you know, the, the other one they kept before. And so though, like a, a decade of those higher, like gently puts those back into the market. And so, you know, you do 5 million a year at 8%. And so after a few years, now we have, a, a you know, the cost basis for everyone is higher across the country. And there are fewer and fewer people that, um, you know, want to hold on to that house forever. So what I what I just heard, Mike, is, is that again, I think that we the four of us here recognize that there's not going to be a you know March 2024, things will shift and we'll be at a different, you know, better with air quotes, market more balance, et cetera. We're looking at a generational shift of housing in the US. And it's going to take five, seven, 12 years to get back to a market that is, you know, 
more more there's more equilibrium in, in the buyers and sellers. And a lot can happen demographically, societally, in that time frame as well. Yeah, I think so. And and you know, we you know, we have had the millennial tailwind for the last few years and get a couple more years of of millennials who want to buy their houses and millennials rolling into their peak earning years and things like that. Um, but after that, you know, it dips again. And, you know, we're Gen X, right? I mean, you know, yeah. like we we were the the last dip. And guess what? When we were 38, that's when the market, you know, there's the fewest of us. And we were 38 in 2008. And so that's when the, you know, the, the you know, so there are those types of demographic things that can happen in the second half of this decade that I think are worth paying attention to, especially if, you know, the rates are higher and for, you know, multiple years. But I think those are the combination of things, right? It's, it's construction, it's, you know, multiple years with rates higher will gently uh, each year add some some inventory, some supply because fewer fewer periods. It's been a really, really great decade to hold real estate. It's been really cheap. And so if those assumptions change, then fewer people will hold real estate. Yeah, interesting. I want to I want to uh, maybe shift shift gears a little bit and talk about um, some of the numbers that you track. So clearly, you track sales and median price and kind of some of the big numbers. But I, I love the way that you really spend a lot of time focusing on price reductions, percentage of cash deals, days on market as a kind of a mainstream number, but that's one that's out there too, that, that you're looking at. If you were to look at kind of some of those, you know, secondary stats and you could only look at one number, like whether it's price reductions over the course of history or days of mark days on market or cash deals over the course of the last 10 years or something else, what would that one kind of secret data point be that that you would use to kind of gauge not just the health of the market now but maybe where things are going um so i think as a leading indicator um and i we have a basket of leading indicators so you know it's like median price there's a median price of sold there's a median price of those impending which is before that there's a median price of the, the the houses that are on the market now which is before the pending before they go pending there's a median price of the new listings this week. And you can see like four months in a row of those, you know, leading indicators in just looking at like price, what, like what is the price of homes? And, and so those are, those are neat leading indicators. Uh, but, but the percentage of homes with price reductions, I think is very telling uh, for future sales prices. And uh, so the way that one works is like, you know, homes are on the market now. And as we said, they go 30 days and in November they take a price cut. Um, then let's say in December they get their offer because they got into the right price range. December they, that closes in January or maybe February. You know, you start hearing about the sales price in February or March, right? Like it's way out in front, but we we know right now what's happening right? By watching this price reductions number. And so, you know, the rule of thumb is about a third of homes take a price cut before they sell. Uh, that's a little different between different markets. So uh, Austin is actually normally closer to 40% and Phoenix is normally closer to 40% of the market takes a price cut. And in some of the like hot California markets, it's normally in the twenties uh, that need a price cut because California has chronic shortage of inventory. 
Um, but but it's about a, about a third nationally take a price cut. And so when price cuts are fewer, you know, sometimes and, and those price cuts are like sometimes it's a it's a you know it's strategic. It's like the seller says, "I'm gonna if I don't take at least one price cut, I underprice my house." Right. So there's sometimes that, or there's sometimes it's a mistake or wh whatever the reason, but about a third take their price cut. But then what happens is, um, you know, when 25 or 20% or like, you know, peak of the frenzy, 16, 15% of the homes take price cuts. So 35% of the people thought they were overpriced, but only 15% needed to cut their price. Like, that's really strong indicator of organic levels of demand. These are people buying everything in sight. And then likewise, when it when price reductions climb, 37, 38, 40%, 50%, um, that's a real indication of weakness in demand. And so um, uh, like in Austin right now, it's about 50 some percent of the home, 50 some, I don't know, 52% of the homes on the market in Austin have taken a price cut, more than half, right? That's telling. Um, last year though, it was 62% at this time of year. So we can see that relatively slightly better now, slightly even colder last year. And so, you know, 62% of the homes on the market have taken a price cut. That means the sales that happen in December, in January, that close in January are going to be lower than where they are now. And so that's a really telling indicator of what's going to happen in the future. And like I said, you know, that's telling for um, sellers who like, I'm going to list right now. And, you know, are we priced right? Are we, you know, what's happening with is our demand increasing or decreasing while we have the house listing? So that's a really powerful one. And you can look at that, you know, in any zip code around the country, you know, you can look over time and go, yeah, you know, in this part of Charlottesville, like this is the, the, you know, the premium part of town and, you know, it's really close in. And, and so it's normally 30% uh, or, you know, and further out, it's normally 40%, what, but you can find that. And uh, you can see a pattern. There's more price reductions in the fall before the holidays, right? I'm going to try to get it done before the holidays. If it doesn't happen, then a lot of stuff gets withdrawn and relisted in January. And then, so the fewest price reductions are when the new inventory is coming on in the first quarter. And then price reductions start climbing in at the end of the second quarter. They peak at the you know beginning of the fourth quarter and then reset for the holidays again. So you see this, you know, the curve each year that way. Yeah. Interesting. Good, good point. So Mike, what you you mentioned Northeast a little bit earlier. Uh, do you see of of how you break down the U.S. Where do you do you foresee it's going to be poised for the more balanced market? Is there any seg segment of the country that you're like yeah? Because I was listening to something the other day saying that you know the Midwest could be positioned well for price you know balance and growth because you know large parts of the parts of the country are you know one vastly unaffordable. And two may become unlivable in the next few years. So yeah. I mean, it's is there a part of the country that says he's like that's where I think it's going to be better, if you will. You know, I think we can look at the data, and it was a real surprise a year ago, um, looking at the Midwest and Northeast. 
uh, where, you know, inventory was rising across the country. Last September, we had the rates spike, right? We had a surprising rate spike, all of a sudden, seven and a half percent, and things slowed way down. And, uh, and inventory started climbing at that time. And I, uh, you know, what, what passed my attention first, like I missed at first was that, wow, you know, the Midwest and the Northeast markets are not increasing in inventory. They did not really increase in inventory. They did not come off the pandemic lows. And, and, and I think what was happening is, um, those are the outbound migration markets. And the inbound migration markets were, you know, massively booming during the pandemic. And so that migration stopped. And so the pendulum swung back to the other side, right? Like the 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 the, the buyers stopped moving from the northeast to Phoenix and and so or they slowed way down. And so that that um buildup uh stopped happening. And so um so what that means is right now the Midwest and Northeast markets have ultra low rates, ultra low supply. But you know, so then as demand falls down with cost, they're more balanced, right? They're more balanced in a in a tighter market. Now they are also affordable and much more affordable than all the boom markets are. And so I think that also bodes well for um, you know, for buyers in an 8%, you know, world. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so let, let's talk about pricing a little bit. And I'll, I'll tell you, we, we've talked about this, Jim, Keith, and I have talked about this a lot. I've got a theory. Look, we're in a spot right now where housing for the last 20 years has never been this quote unquote unaffordable. Um, uh, rates are high, um, but pricing has values have held pretty even, which for the most part doesn't make any sense until you dig a little deeper and say, all right, there's no inventory and it's been dominated by the boomers and, and cash buyers. Do you feel as though the prices and the values in today's market have been almost artificially propped up by the top 5% of buyers in the market that have the cash and that are just paying, you know, within reason, whatever. Um, and do you see that if inventory, you know, bumps as we hope it will, that prices really do drop some? Or do you think that this that the prices are going to be sustainable? So one thing I've learned is that um over time is that a market being unaffordable does not predict price adjustments, right? Uh, like in a, an unaffordable market can stay unaffordable for a long time, maybe indefinitely. Um, and so, um, and, and, you know, really it's the, it, it is a, you know, a supply and demand thing where it's like, you know, Palo Alto, California is 50,000 people and the median price is two and a half million bucks or something ridiculous right now. Uh, but there's only, you know, 30 homes on the market. It doesn't have to be affordable to 50,000. It only has to be affordable to 30 people who, you know, have a lot of cash. And right. so it can be like comparing affordability, like median uh, income to median price. It's like, it doesn't have to be affordable to the median person 
because there's only 50 homes. Yeah. Right. Um, and so, so uh, affordability per se doesn't predict price uh, reduction, like prices coming down uh, in the future. Um, you know, and, uh, and, but I do think that, um, so, but, but, it, but it is supply. Um, but again, we're like a long way from, from a lot of supply. And so, um, you know, I think, you know, we, we always have the fear, like, and I'm always on the lookout for what are the triggers? Are the triggers for a home price crash? Are there triggers like that risk? When is that crisis going to hit us? And I look at the data every day for that. Um, and one of the, the questions is like, what if the home price crash is not the crisis we're facing? What if the crisis is home prices don't crash? Right. And like, and what are the crises is that we, we, we don't get too affordable. Like, and now we've, we've priced out the, the market for so many people and it's a, that's a real challenge. Um, and so, you know, I think, like I said, I think if, if uh, the cost of money falls down, I think it's likely that we're going to have less inventory. So I don't see it likely that we're going to have a surge of inventory. Um, we'll get more, uh, we'll get more demand, and so we'll have less inventory. And um, if we have, so let's say we have a big job loss recession, like job losses start. We're fully employed now, but let's say these jobs start. We start losing jobs. So uh, at some point. You lose your job. You can't make your mortgage, but you got to sell your house. Those that part of the cycle, the business cycle can hit, will hit at some point. Um, that inventory is probably it's a year past the job losses. So if the recession hits hard first quarter next year, second quarter next year, then it's 2025 inventory uh, at the at the beginning of that before we see that. And so, you know, what happens in a big job loss recession, you know, and all the dynamics of that recession, uh, I think remain to be seen. It's, you know, my leading indicators are, you know, beyond a few, beyond a year out, 18 months out is, is infinitely far, right? Um, all kinds of wars and, you know, whatever things might happen in that time. Um, so, uh, but yeah, so, so like, um, there are what other things might lead to a lot of inventory, right? So job loss recession, uh, investors who, you know, panic and you know, have to unload properties, um, you know, the Airbnb bust, you know, like the, do the Airbnb owners suddenly have to sell all their homes. Um, and these are all like legitimate um, things that could happen. And the market. And I think the important thing is that to note is that none of it is happening right now, like zero. Right. And so they may happen. Um, and at some point there's a, a recession that goes in job loss and, and maybe it's a recession and, in, and rates are still high. And then it's a double whammy. And we, and we have people, no people buying and people selling like that. That is a scenario where we could uh, uh, eventually, you know, see a surge of inventory, uh, but it's not in the data yet. I mean, I would say the, the last thing I'll say on that is, is, you know, one, as we are all, you know, I, again, I've been doing this for 20 some odd years. I've never seen a market quite like this. I mean, this is just a very odd and different market, but I think the thing that, you know, I'm reading and colleagues and I are talking about we're, we're, you know, we're all in, in a lot of ways, we're all in this together. And it's, 
the 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 pre prevailing theme is you know control what you can control because all the stuff be, that you're mentioning is to be perfectly blunt i can go in that dark deep spiral of horribleness of what could happen but it's like it doesn't do any good i mean i think that it's a matter of you know keeping a you know, book i read you know we've all probably read many years ago talk about positive positive mental attitude you know the, keep the pma and track the data so you can advise your clients and your agents and your brokers as to what what's happening you know on on friday or thursday because what happened six weeks ago 12 weeks ago in a lot of ways is not as relevant as what's happening tomorrow and so I think yeah. that it's a matter of looking at the at those those data points that you put out and that we that we look at every day, so we can you know, understand the market as best we possibly can and give the best advice. Because, man, if I again, I, if I could control what's happening in the world today, I wouldn't be here. But it's, right. Well, and you know, Jim, you know, that's we've been kind of sort of bearish in this conversation, a little yeah. down in the conversation. And I should point out that, like, and we've been talking about eight percent rates and higher for longer. Um, I don't predict interest rates. Um, and I've proven over and over again that I don't predict interest rates. Like I bought my first house in 1996, you know, and I locked in at whatever it was, 8% for 30 years. Cause I was like, well, rates got to go up from here. And I, you know, then I bought my next house in 2001 and I locked in for 30 years. I bought my next house. Yeah. You know, like every time I think rates got to go up from here. Right. Um, and so I don't have any idea where mortgage rates are going. Right. Um, and, you know, uh, and so that is like they could change tomorrow. Um, you know, there's a scenario where if we go into recession, then like all of a sudden rates are come way down again. And so suddenly affordability is back. And so, you know, like there, there are lots of those uh, things that that um, uh, are variables that happen in the future. And, and I don't have, and I and. Like it's like you said, if if I could predict mortgage rates, I wouldn't be in the housing data business. I'd be trading mortgage rates. Like I, that, that'd right. be my business, right? Um, so uh, so yeah. So th there's a there's a ton to keep our eyes out, and it's always changing. Um, and so that's why we do the you know we track the whole country every week. Yeah. So I will say you know the interesting thing is I had a I had a business planning meeting yesterday with an agent who was distraught because 2023 has been one of the worst years she's had in the business in terms of closed transactions. And what was interesting was is that as we talked about it and we looked at what she's been doing, everything is right. You know, she's taking all this, all the steps that we want people to do and she's got the farm, she's got the, you know, everything done right. But what was fascinating was is that as we looked at what her pipeline was for 2024, that the the reality was right now she's looking at the strongest pipeline she's ever had in terms of people who've already reached out and said, I want to sell my house and this is the reason I'm not selling it this year, but why June of next year makes sense or why this. And we looked at it and I said to her, I said, this is not a question of your year is a bad year. It's that what's happened is everybody's just putting things off for next year, but you're still developing the same business. You're still getting the same, you know, referral sources. Everything's coming through. You're just not getting the closings happening, but the businesses are still developing and, and what her personal business is. And so it's fascinating to look at and think about where you're pointing the finger saying, look, we can't, you know, Jim, to your point, you control what you can control, right? You, you can, you concern yourself with what you can control. And then in, in her case, She's done everything right, but it just hasn't closed. 
it's still there and that pipeline's still there. And I think that's what we're seeing in a lot of these places is we talk about if the interest rate comes down, suddenly buyers jump back into the market quickly. Um, I, you know, the, the market is pent up right now. Um, and we, we definitely have all of the fundamentals elsewhere there. It's that interest rates just not cooperating, not cooperating. And, and Keith, it's, um, I think that brings up a really great point is, you know, the, the shift of uh, the marketing shift right now for agents uh, is really about nurture. Uh, so that, you know, I, those people, I'm top of mind with those people. When it happens, you know, we're there. Um, and an interesting thing is like market data is a really great nurture process because it's always fresh, right? People open those emails. Everybody has an opinion. They want to know what's going on. And so, you know, like communicating with that, like, hey, let's plan for June. I'm going to put the report in your inbox every Monday, you know, keep your eye on the inventory numbers. And it's funny, you know, it's like um, for a bunch of years, you know, one of the best nurtures was uh, like listing alerts, right? Like, hey, new listings, listing alert email comes out, but there's no, there's no new listings. So there's no listing alerts, right? So like, but there's always market data. And so like those kind of things may be really um, things for people to think about. Well, and, and and I will say at Nest, we have always been very focused on the long tail efforts of what our agents can do and what we as a firm do to promote and nurture that relationship. And and I think you're right. This is this is the market where that patience is a virtue. And you've got to just you continue doing what you know is necessary and what you you know works to develop the relationships because it will come back. Um, but again, you know, focus on what you can control. And that's that is not the interest rate environment. Yeah, I love uh, I love that phrase right there. I think you need to have a new tagline for Altos Research. There's always market data. So that's, uh, <laughs> I like that. <laughs> it, it, that's great. And look, I will tell you that you you know what you're what you're doing for the industry is so beneficial and um, so appreciate the the podcast and the data that you put out. And I know that you are you and your team in in it's not just you, but you and your team are putting your heart and soul into this to give, you know, the collective realtor population um, great data to like, we talk at Nest, you know, our job is to help our clients make great real estate decisions and we can't make decisions for them, but we can work with them and collaborate with them to help them make great real estate decisions. And market data is a huge component of that. So um, kind of wrapping this up, you know, this podcast is sweat the details in this always, I mean, changing market that we're in what's the what's the one detail that you are sweating you know kind of day in day out that you'd like to share with us the the what i'm watching right now is inventory growth in late october uh you know it is unusual for nationally for for inventory to be growing in late october um and it's uh you know it's really a measure of like how hard are the brakes on right now um we were, uh, you know, a year ago had had more inventory, like it had climbed higher. But right now, inventory is climbing more each week than it was last year at this time. And, you know, last year it peaked October 30th, but also mortgage rates peaked that for that same week. And so, you know, rates down, inventory down. And so, um, so like we saw that right now, rates don't feel like they peaked yet. You know, like there's still, you know, we're still running right ahead you know, there's some slight, you know, heating in the in, in the inflation numbers, some inflation number yesterday, 
some es esoteric inflation number that drives mortgage rates higher, you know? And so I'm watching right now, I'm watching inventory climb, you know, and, and I just, it's Friday when we're recording this and I just got our preliminary numbers for the week and inventory is up nationally again in a, in like a kind of a surprisingly big number this week. And, um, and so uh, that's the one I'm watching right now. Um, does it, does it climb into November? You know, do price then therefore price reductions climb? Do we get to this point? Because if we start seeing, you know, inventory climbing in November and price reductions climbing, that implies we're going to have, you know, home price declines in the headlines next year, right? And uh, as of right now, we don't have those price declines in the headlines yet. Um, you know, we're up a couple percent year over year for the next few months. You'll, we'll see those headlines, but, but, you know, it, it, like it, it, you know, that's, so that's the detail I'm watching right now is, is inventory going to climb into November? Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Well, the media would love if there was price declines because it's like one more thing to like latch on to. to <laughs> yeah. To, you know, so, Hey, I, um, I tweeted so yesterday, I tweeted the other day, uh, uh, an appraiser in Sacramento, um, is, is sack appraiser on Twitter. Like he does Sacramento data and, and he did out September numbers. And, and I noticed that the uh, short sales in the whole million population of Sacramento, uh, uh, it, it doubled in the year. It went from one to two short sales, uh, last year to this year. And so my head, my tweet headline was, you know, short sales up a hundred percent in Sacramento over last year. Um, and then, uh, and and I was joking, of course. And then I saw a headline on the, this morning on somewhere on some site: foreclosure inventory is surging. And I was like, "Oh my god!" You know the headline. That, <laughs> like, that's the context behind it. I actually, I'll, I'll say one more thing. I I saw an article um, recently about uh, Chick Fil A drive-throughs, about how they were the slowest drive-throughs in in uh, in all the the of all the top ten. They were the slowest. Well, do you want to know why? They have four times as many cars, right? You, you <laughs> gotta like drill down and, and, and understand why, why the data. So, um, so yeah. So you're not just bringing the data, but you're bringing context to the data, and we we appreciate that. Thank you very much, Jim. Awesome, Mike. Thanks a bunch. It's always thanks, awesome. Mike. All right, guys. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Appreciate it. everybody thanks for listening as always if you like our show we would love if you rated it and reviewed it but even more we'd love if you shared it with a friend thanks everyone and if you have any topics you'd like us to discuss please email me jim at nestrealty.com <laughs>